Thank you again, worship team, for leading us in songs of praise, remembering the grace of our God, the grace of God in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, wonderful truths as we reflect, as we continue in worship this morning. Appropriate doctrine and a reminder, doctrinal reminder, especially as um, well, let me go back. Uh, as we come to this section on faith uh, that without works is dead, and especially the the, the phrase that we're going to see here that uh, a man is justified by works, and uh, that's a it can, as a the subject this this particular scripture has uh, led to some you know is challenging as a challenge to interpret for many because it seems to contradict even what we've just sung and what we've, as a church, have proclaimed, a gospel that is by grace that is, and that is by through faith and not of works. But uh, we'll see that even this passage, a faith uh, that without works is, is dead, a, a, faith, a true faith is that which works, and that uh, we'll understand how uh, what James is trying to in, in teach us, instruct us, and what God's trying to instruct us about the nature of true saving faith. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26, as we continue our part two of uh, this series on faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. We read in the word of God, James 2, 14 through 26. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let us pray one more time. Lord, thank you for your word. And as we come to this passage, we, we, read, we have read how faith without works is dead and that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Lord, as we come to this thought, especially if we're familiar with the, uh, Paul's writings in Romans particularly, Lord, it seems to contradict and I know, Lord, this has led many to be confused, led a whole, uh, much of Christendom to believe in a false gospel, even. Lord, we pray that your spirit would teach us, give us understanding of this challenging passage, but yet a needful passage 
for those who follow Christ. Lord, we know that your scripture is true, that it is without error, and that you inspired, that your word is inspired, breathed out from your very mouth. So, Lord, we come by faith to your word, knowing that what James speaks is true, and that it will not contradict what Paul speaks elsewhere, or what Moses might speak of. Lord, we know that all the men whom you moved by your spirit to write these words wrote your words, and Lord, we hear them now as from your mouth. Lord, help me to speak as if by the utterances of you, Lord, that your people would hear, that they would heed your word, live by them. And Lord, if there's yet anyone here still who does not, maybe has a profession of faith, but yet in their hearts they have a dead faith, a faith that does not work, Lord, I pray that you would challenge them this morning. Cause us all, Father, to examine that we would not be the foolish fellow that says he has faith but has no works. Lord, we pray that so that we would be a church that reflects in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would commit our, this, the study of your word to you. Teach us, Lord, we pray. Speak to your people, Father. Minister to each one and help us to grow in our love and appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, <clears throat> a minister was talking to a professing Christian uh, one day, and the minister asked if this professing Christian if he was active in a local church. Was he, was he a, involved, a member of a local church? And the man responded, well, no, but the dying thief wasn't active in a church, and yet he was still accepted by God. The minister then asked him, well, if he had been baptized. And the man responded, well, you can, you can know where I'm going, right? The dying thief was not baptized, and he still made it to heaven. The minister then asked him a third question, that if he had partaken of the Lord's table, observed communion. And the man responded, no, the dying thief didn't either. And Christ still received him. So the minister then commented to this man, the only difference between you and the dying thief is that he was dying in his belief, but you are dead in yours. Now, this illustration kind of just, or this story, illustrates that it is possible to have a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but that is in, but which in reality is a dead faith. It's a faith that does not save. As we've read in this passage three times, James emphatically warns us with this, this repetition of his main theme, faith, verse 17, if it has no works, is dead. Verse 20, faith without works is useless. Verse 26, faith without works is dead. Three times and, uh, to emphasize the point. And as we looked at last week, we began to look at last week, in verse 14 to 17, James emphasized or explained or argued that a profession of faith without a demonstration of compassion is dead. 
a person who says they love God, believe in God, but does not have love for their brothers or sisters who are in need, has a dead faith. And then James continued in verse 18 to 20. He argued that a confession of a creed without submission to the Lord is also dead. To have correct doctrine about God and is, is a good thing, uh, just as the Jewish people believe that God is one as part of the Shema. But to not submit to him, to not obey him, is no different than what the demons do. See, faith without works is dead. Faith without works does not save. And so we ask ourselves, what kind of faith does save? And James, in the latter part of this passage, gives us two examples of living faith, a faith that works, a faith that saves. He'll emphasize that this is the nature of true saving faith. And as we examine these two individuals, two examples, I pray that we would measure our own lives by their faith. That we would not just look at their faith as being an example of, of exemplary faith. That is, that, per, that faith that we all should attain to. But it's a faith of everyday faith for the believers in Jesus Christ. That we would examine our lives to see if we have a faith every day that manifests like the two examples that we look at this, this morning. And I pray that uh, we would rejoice, most of the majority, we would all rejoice that because we have discovered that we do have a faith that works. And, but if we don't, we don't get to that place where we're wrestling with whether we have a faith that works or not, then I pray that it would also ch- challenge us to examine our hearts because there's nothing more than I, as a pastor, that if I was going to get to the end of, uh, you know, a lifetime of preaching and ministry to know that one of the members of this church would have sat under the preaching or been under our shepherding as elders and heard the gospel week in, week out, but never yet was challenged to make sure that they examined their faith and then they died with a faith that doesn't work, a faith that's dead, and that would be a terrible tragedy. And so... I know we come to a passage that I think is familiar, it's familiar to those of us that are older Christians, but hopefully we'll all hear this and just challenge, be challenged again by the Word of God. Let's take a look then at these two examples of living faith, a faith that works. The number one is the faith of Abraham that we read about in this passage. In verse, in ver, I'm sorry, I wrote verse 14 to 17. Uh, I didn't get that correct. Verse 21 through 23. 21 through 23. And we look here at, first of all, Abraham's example of living faith in verse 21. Verse Abraham, James writes, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? Uh, for many Christians, and especially young believers, as a young believer, Abraham is an unfamiliar individual. Uh, we might know a little bit about him, but we generally don't know much about his life in general, or his life in particular. We are probably more familiar with Moses, the stories of Moses, or we're, story of the story, we're familiar with the stories of David. But James here begins with an example of someone whom every one of his readers, the original readers, recipients of this letter, these J- Christians of Jewish background, would have been very familiar with. This is like, for us, remembering about who Jesus is, someone that's very, we know all his stories, all the details. You see, J- 
James's Jewish audience saw Abraham as their father. He was uh, the patriarch of the Israelites. And his life story is recorded for us in Genesis 12 through 24. It was God's covenant promise. And, and I'm going to do a quick review of, Gen- of, um, of Abraham's life. And if uh, it piques your interest, then definitely encourage you to read Genesis 12 through 24. A very fascinating story, an encouraging story about a faith of a man who followed God. And, but in Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, and particularly verse 2, there God made a covenant promise with Abraham. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. And there God promised to, not only to bless him, but he particularly promised in, to make of Abraham into a great nation. And so in case of that, he would make of his descendants a great and mighty nation, a nation that would be not only that God would bless, but would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's how wonderful his nation. Can you imagine if God promised you, he says, you're from your seed, from your children, I'm going to change the world. That's a huge, huge blessing. But that was the blessing that God gave Abraham. And so this, from this blessing, this covenant that God made with Abraham, he essentially formed the beginnings of the Israelite nation. And so for all, every Jew, they would, have, they would have been very familiar with who Abraham was. It was, in fact, common to refer to the Israelites as the descendants or the seed of Abraham. Uh, God had called Abraham in that covenant promise, though, to leave his home. He was living in Ur of Chaldees, uh, uh, Mesopotamia. And he was called to leave there to a land that God would eventually show him. So he didn't even tell him where he would go. Just said, he said, I want you to leave, and I'll, well, I'll tell you where you go when you get there. And although Abraham was 75 years old and, and, and childless as well, Abraham believed God's word. He believed God's covenant promises. He obeyed, and he left Ur, and he went, and he took his wife and, and Lot, his, son, his nephew Lot and traveled. Now, eventually he arrived in the... In the, in the land of Canaan. And in Genesis chapter 15, when we pick up the story, years had passed since Abraham had moved there. Um, but remember the promise. God promised him to make of him a great nation from his descendants. But Abraham was still childless at this time. So God appeared to him in a vision. And, it, you know, God, if you, you know, uh, one of the things if, you, if, you, if you're, you know, childless or, and you've been married for a while, is this is constant desire for, ch- for children. It's a very natural thing. You kind of just wish for it. And so Abraham probably was uh, desiring, looking forward to that child, particularly because of the, specific, the, the particular nature of this child, that he would be from him, he would become a great nation. So God appeared to him in this vision. And then God told Abraham, encouraged him, says, look, go outside and, and look at all the stars. Look at all the stars and, and count them. Now, uh, you know, maybe back then we would have thought, you know, when you're children, you think, oh, maybe there's 2,000 stars up there. Uh, the fact is, there are much more, more than a trillion, infinite number of stars, as even as our science kind of looks, looks out there into the space. They're countless. God encouraged Abraham by saying, your children will be like the stars of the heaven. It's going to be countless. And so God said to him, so shall your descendants be. What a blessing. What a great encouragement. And then Genesis 15, 6, it is recorded that then Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it, and God, that is, reckoned it to him as righteousness, or credited it to him as righteousness. So because Abraham believed in God, believed in God's promises, God credited it to him as righteousness. No, Abraham was not a perfect righteous man. 
Even by this point, he had, off, he had been uh, committed sin. He had lied and, and deceived. But God credited to him his faith as righteousness. Now, years again would pass, and you think, okay, God, he'll have a children right away. But now it's, it's a, Abraham's 100 years old, 100 years old. So that's 25 years after the promise is given. And still, Abraham and Sarah do not have a child of their own. But it was in Genesis 21 that finally God gave him and Sarah their son named Isaac. And so all of a sudden, after 25 years of waiting, they received this precious child, this precious son, this son whom, they, whom all the promises of God, as they watched their son, they could see all the promises of God would be fulfilled through this son, this precious one and only son. And so it's so shocking, as you can imagine, it was for Abraham. It'd be shocking for any of you who are parents who are maybe your first child. And then asked to, what God asked of Abraham here, and it was a test, that God tested Abraham and asked him to take his son, his only son, and offer him as a sacrifice to God, an offering to God. Not only had Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years for the birth of their only son, Isaac, but Isaac was this very son to whom all the blessings would be fulfilled. The great nation that would come through this son, how could now God ask Abraham to kill his son? Yet, we read in Genesis 22 that Abraham trusted God and obeyed. He brought his son to Mount Moriah. He built an altar there. He arranged the wood. He bound his son and he laid him on the altar. He picked up the knife and was prepared to offer his son to the Lord. And it was then that the angel of the Lord, who was the pre-incarnate Christ, stopped him. He spoke. And the pre-incarnate Christ said in Genesis 22, verse 12, he says, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. This is just a brief summary of Abraham's life, and it's the background for which that which James now speaks of Abraham here in verse 21. And he, James says and asks rhetorically, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. This, the rhetorical question expects an answer, a positive answer of, of yes. Yes, Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son. Note that James is saying here, very specifically, that the instrument by which Abraham is being justified here is works. Good works, good deeds. We talked about this last week. The, 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 obedience, uh, the obedience to God's command in righteousness, those righteous deeds that we do in obedience to him. But this would seem, at least to us today, to contradict this do our doctrine of justification by faith. And it should cause us to be a little a bit uneasy. Because we know what Paul says. Paul writes in, Galat in Romans 3.28 that here he says, Paul maintains that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, without the works of the law. So yet James writes, 
Abraham was justified by works. And later he's going he's to say this phrase three times in this passage. A man, just, Rahab was justified by faith. A man is justified by faith. I'm mean not, by works. I'm sorry. By works. Three times. So how can one say that Abraham was justified by works and another one say <clears throat> that Abraham was justified by faith? Now we understand the, if you have a Roman, if you come out of a Roman Catholic background, you know the Roman Catholic Church's answer to this. The Roman Catholic Church answer is that it's because both are true. That one, a person is saved, justified by both faith and works together. That it's, yes, they would, you would kind of say, hey, do you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, your Lord and Savior? A Roman Catholic said, a good Roman Catholic would say, yes, I do believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and died on the cross for my sins. Do you, and do you believe that salvation is by faith alone? And they would say, no, it's not. I also have to do the works. I also have to, that I'm also justified by my works. The works together and my faith save me. That's a Roman Catholic, general Roman Catholic answer. And uh, even... It's interesting because in the last uh, 10, 20 years, there's been a kind of a, a resurgence among Protestant Christians to uh, back towards a Roman Catholic view. Uh, uh, we won't get into that. It's kind of a, one of the, what scholars are debating in the last few years or have been debating in the last in several, about five, ten years or so, a little longer. Now, the problem with the Roman Catholic view, though, I think it's, it's understandable. Uh, I think we, we try to always try to get our mind, we're always trying to figure out what's a, what's a res- resolution of this. And it just makes sense. We just kind of take both to be by faith. One says we're justified by faith. One says we're just by works. Therefore, they're both true. But it's, we, if we hold that view, we basically are not being careful in our, ex- in our study of Scripture. We're not being careful. We, we're just kind of mashing them together. Uh, because Paul did say very explicitly that a man is justified by faith apart from works. So it's very explicit, this statement. But it's not just a one little verse, because if it was just one verse, well, maybe, maybe Paul means something else there. But this doctrine of justification by faith alone and not by works is taught throughout the New Testament particularly. We see it three, t- three times. For instance, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 2 Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. And then Titus 3.5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds, that's works, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So scripture, the predominance of scripture teaches that a person is saved, justified, apart from works, without works, not according to works. It's, it, would be, and it would take a mound of evidence or more than just one verse to then, here in James, to instantly say, well, a person is saved by, work, by, saved by works, as long with faith. So how do we resolve this apparent problem? The, res- the re- resolution of this problem is solved when we understand rightly the meaning of this word justify. It's from the meaning of how James, which James uses it and Paul uses it. We realize as we study this word, we do a word study. You kind of do a word study of justify throughout the scriptures. It's a very predominant, it's, it's, a, it's used quite often, that it, it has two predominant usages. 
two, well, one's more predominant than the other, but two main usages, two main differences. The first usage of justify is to use justify in the term, in the, in the sense of an acquittal, to acquit someone. That is to declare someone as being innocent or righteous in this case. The word just means righteous, right? So to justify means to, to declare someone righteous. And that's how Paul uses this word. He uses this word particularly in, in Romans in Romans 3 and 4, those, the great section on justification by faith and not apart from works. Uh, and he'll use it in Galatians uh, as well. Now, James uses justify in a slightly different way. James uses justify in the sense of vindication. Vindication. So a person is vindicated. Someone is, dem- you know, it's like, you know, you can declare, I'm, I'm, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. So, you know, people don't believe you, but eventually something comes out and then shows and proves that you're innocent. Well, that's vindication. That's this word, justification. So to demonstrate or prove that someone is righteous. And that's how James uses the word. So it's not, James is not using it in the sense of declaring someone righteous, but he's using it in the terms that it's demonstrating that someone is righteous. Jesus, in fact, will use this word in this, in this very way as vindication in Luke 7.35 when he says, yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. So that's kind of just an example of that kind of usage. So James is saying here then this, that Abraham's righteousness that he had attained by faith was demonstrated in his works, was proven in his works, particularly here the offering of his son. So Abraham, when he's justified by works according to James, is saying that Abraham's righteousness was revealed, was proven, was shown by his works. In fact, James had said this very, this very point earlier in verse 18, didn't he? When he said that a person can only show one's faith by one's works. The kind of faith that saves is a living faith like Abraham's, who demonstrated his faith through the offering of his son. James then, in verse 22 to 23, elaborates on this nature of living faith. In verse 22 to 23, he says, You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. James explains Abraham's living faith here. And we can observe three things about Abraham's faith, or Three things about living faith from, this, from these two verses. First of all, we observe that living faith is inseparable from good works. Living faith is inseparable from good works. <clears throat> he wrote in verse, <clears throat> James wrote in verse 22 that faith, Abraham's faith, <clears throat> was working together with his works. That word working means uh, it's a word which is synergy. It's working together is this idea. So it was working together with his works. They, they're, they're, they're in effect, they're operating at the same time. The idea here is that both faith and works were operating in Abraham's life. It wasn't, <clears throat> the point is that faith and works go hand in hand. You can't, Abraham didn't have only faith and not works, nor did Abraham have only works and not faith. Faith produces, inevitably produces, the doing of good works. So faith 
is inseparable from good works. Living faith, that is, is inseparable from good works. Secondly, we learn that living faith is perfected by good works. Abraham's faith here was perfected uh, by faith. Faith was perfected in, uh, as we read. This word perfected means to be, <clears throat> it could mean to be perfect without sin. It could mean that, but that's not the more common meaning. The, m- the more common meaning is just something that is mature, something that's complete, something that attains uh, with the idea of attaining or uh, the end or goal which something exists. You know, you can be a mature adult, right? But yet you can still do something foolish at times. doesn't mean you're perfect as an adult. You can still do foolish things. But generally your life has reached that place in your life where you behave and think and speak and respond like a responsible adult, mature adult. So Abraham's, when it says his faith was perfected, we're not, it does, it's not a teaching that, that Abraham was perfect without sin. Rather, as Abraham did good works, each of his various, the acts that he did, the works that he did, was causing or working with Abraham's faith to, to take another step towards the intended goal that God desired, that he was maturing Abraham's faith, that it was accomplishing that which his faith, God gave him his faith to do. And we see this kind of this idea reflected in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, particularly verse 10. Verse 8 through 9 is the familiar passage about how we're saved by grace through faith and not of works, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, after writing that, we, Paul adds, for we are his work, God's workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God gives us faith, God gives us salvation, and we're saved by faith, not of works, for the very purpose of good works. That's what James is say, Paul says. And Paul says, furthermore, that God prepared us beforehand. The idea is that from eternity past, when he chose us, he chose, he also prepared to prepare us for that, for, in, for after our salvation, we would do good works, and then we would walk in them. We would actually walk a life that reflects all these works. All the good works you do is not because you figured it out. Not because I was, oh, clever. Oh, I decided to do that. Oh, praise me. No. Every single good works that we do, that you and I do, was prepared beforehand by God the Father so that you would walk in them, that you would follow them through. They're intended by God to bring him glory. Paul and James both understand that faith and works are inseparable for the Christian. And though we are saved by faith, our faith is incomplete without works. Our faith is completed and brought to maturity when we do good works because we are ultimately saved for this very purpose of doing those, these works that God's called us. Thirdly, we learn here about living faith that living faith saves apart from good works. Even James is very clear about this in this passage that he does, it indicates in this verse that he knows that we're not saved by works, but he's, He's saying we're saved by faith, apart from works. James' quotation here is Genesis 15, 6 again. We talked about it earlier. And it affirms that James understands Abraham's salvation by faith, apart from works. For when Abraham believed God in Genesis 15, and at that moment it was credited to him as righteousness, remember at that point, Abraham was still childless. He didn't even have a son, much less offer him on the altar. And so clearly, uh, James understood that 
Abraham already had faith. And he was already reckoned, it was already reckoned him as righteousness. And so that, that we, when, he, when he says justify, that Abraham was justified by works, he cannot be intending to say that Abraham at that moment was saved by his works. Because he already said it right here. Abraham was saved when he did, when he believed in God's word, in God's promise in Genesis 15. James ends his explanation of, the living, of Abraham's living faith with a statement, and he was called the friend of God. Perhaps uh, James was thinking of 2 Chronicles 20, verse 7, or Isaiah 41, verse 8, that refer to Abraham as God's friend. The scriptures refer to him as that. But perhaps James is also thinking of Jesus' teaching. And Jesus' teaching in John 15, verse 14, where Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus established a principle that, that his friends, the people who have a relationship with him, are those who do what God commands them. And Abraham's obedience then marked him as a friend of God. He had a genuine faith that resulted in a pattern of obedience to God's commands, including the willingness to even offer his son when God tested him. Abraham's faith is the kind of faith that God gives. He gives us a faith that manifests in obedience to his commands, resulting then in, in the obedience and doing of good works. Specifically, it's kind of a point of application we, we can bring out here. God calls for a faith that is willing, when called upon, to put God before your family. Now, I know all of us, family is very important. Uh, you all know the saying, family is number one. I don't know how many times I hear that. Uh, family is so important, and family is. Family is important, but family is not number one. God is number one for the believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus would teach this in the Gospels. In Matthew 10, 35, when he would say, For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In verse 37 of Matthew 10, he says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. God, Jesus, wants you to put him before all things. To let him, Christ, have first place in your life even before your family. Of course, God wants you to give priority to your family as well. He calls us to love our families, to love our husbands, love our wives, to love our children. But a living faith like Abraham's is an example for us, is a faith that will work. And a particular way that it works out in our life is when we do those good works that reflect that God comes first, and God takes priority in our life above all. Does your relationship with your family reflect that? Does it show to your family? Does it show to the people who observe your life that God takes first priority, like Abraham? It's an application for us to think about. And apply.
Well, James moves on, and he gives us a second example of a faith, of a living faith, of a faith that works. And that is the faith of Rahab in verses 24 through 26. James, again, begins with the explanation of living faith in verse 24. He says in verse 24, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James begins this verse with... uh, this verse with a summary of not only his previous verses, but he's introducing the next verse. And when we look at this verse, you see that, it will notice that it seems very similar to repetition of verse 22. Uh, however, a little bit different is that in verse 22, the you there is singular, so he's, which indicates that James was still addressing the foolish man of verse 20. But here in verse 24, he says the you is plural. So he's now saying, you see. So he, said, he was saying, you, this foolish man who thinks that faith without works saves, but doesn't. He says, you see. But now, verse 24, he says, you all. He's going back to his readers. He's saying to his readers, do you see? Or don't you see? You see that a man is, so he's addressing the, the, the Jewish believers. And he tells them, you see that man is justified by works. Remember, we already talked about this word justify. James is using it in the same way that justify in the sense of showing or proving one's righteousness. But the phrase faith alone here is, is, uh, is defined by how James used the word faith earlier. In verse 17, he talks about a faith being by itself. James is very particular. He's not just talking about that which is true faith, but any profession of faith that is by itself. Or verse 14, uh, there it talks about a faith but has no works. Someone who says they have faith, a profession of faith, but has no works. See, that is what he means by faith alone. Sometimes we think faith alone means true faith by itself. No, that's not what he means. He's saying a faith that is alone, a faith that is by itself, a faith that doesn't work. He says a man is not justified by that kind of faith alone. See, a faith that is devoid of works can never demonstrate a true living faith. That's James's point here. However, a faith, we would want to reiterate again, faith is absolutely necessary for salvation. In fact, we're only saved by faith if we think about what Paul, or what the rest of Scripture teaches, that we're justified in the sense that we are declared righteous by faith alone. There must be that sincere confession of trust in Jesus Christ to save. But such a faith will always be accompanied by works that demonstrate a living faith. In fact, this is where it's appropriate to quote Martin Luther, who gives this wonderful statement about the subject of saving faith. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Yes, we're saved by faith and faith alone. We're justified by faith. We can believe God. God reckons it to us as righteousness. It's true. But that faith, that saving faith, will never be alone. It will always be manifest. It will always be accompanied by works. It can't, you can't help it. It will manifest in your lives. And just think about all the times in, this, in our lives that our lives become transformed as a result of saving faith. You know, the moment of your salvation, there's no actual works that you do. But slowly and surely, as we follow Christ, works, the good works that God has saved us for, will manifest in our lives. And Paul understands this too. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 6, of faith working through love. See, he, 
James and Paul understand that we're faith, saved by faith alone, but a living faith is a working faith. It will work out. We're not saved by those works, but those works will demonstrate that we are saved. Now, when we say we believe in salvation by faith alone, sola fide, we also must be careful to not take it beyond the biblical data. Uh, and we can do this, especially if we're not, we're, un, we're not careful. Knowing, for instance, knowing that we are saved by faith and not by works, it can lead us to wrongly think like the man in our opening illustration, right? And I know I used to think like that for a while as a new believer when I kind of figured, oh, saved by faith only. It's not by what I do, whether I perfectly obey God anymore, you know, whether I, I live and watch. You know, I, I was thinking that, oh, he's going to forgive me. And so we, like the man in our opening illustration, we start thinking that, oh, works are optional for the Christian, even not necessary for our life. But James has emphasized that faith that saves is a faith that will manifest in works. Works are expected and necessary in the Christian life, for they are evidence of our genuine faith. You want assurance of salvation, assurance of your faith? Look at the works that God produces in your life. This explanation of living faith then leads appropriately to Rahab's example of living faith in verse 25. He write, James writes, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Uh, now, for many of us, or some of us, Rahab may not be familiar as a story, so it's good to kind of go over the story of Rahab a little bit as well. Rahab was a Gentile prostitute. She lived in the city of Jericho before the Israel nation conquered the land. Joshua had sent, uh, and her story is told in Joshua chapter 2. You can go there and read that just even devotionally later on today. When Joshua chapter 2 verse 1, Joshua, sent, uh, who was the leader of the nation of Israel at this point, sent two spies to view the land, to check out the land that they needed, that they were to conquer uh, in obedience to God's command. And especially they were to check out Jericho because Jericho was right, essentially right in the middle. It was a strategic there. It was basically divide and conquer the land. And so uh, the story goes that they arrived in Jericho, the two spies arrived in Jericho, and they found lodging with Rahab. That's kind of, you can just even think uh, that, that makes sense. You know, uh, a place they need to go to a place where strange men go in and out on a regular basis, won't, won't draw much attention. Well, the prostitute's house is what they found. So they arrived there. Verse 1 tells us that they lodged there with Rahab. Now, eventually, the king of Jericho heard about these two spies somehow. Uh, a lot of traffic there, and maybe noticed that, hey, these people are, are strangers, and what are they doing? They're probably spies. And so the king sent word to Rahab to bring out the men who had come to her house to stay. And that's according to verses 2 to 3. But instead of bringing them out, as she should have, you know, if, uh, as a citizen of Jericho, even for the good of Jericho to bring the spies out, Rahab didn't do that. She hid the men instead. She hid them on a roof. And instead, she told her king that the men had left, and that they were no longer there. And that was in verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2. 
And when the coast was clear, she then sent the two spies out of the city. But before she did, she said these words to this man, these men in two, chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. And she says this, and, and this reflects the faith of Rahab. She said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Rahab had faith in God. She had heard, along with her fellow Jerichoites, about who, what God had done for the Israelites while they wandered in the wilderness, even as they came out of Egypt and defeated the two uh, armies uh, of the, the kings of the Amorites. And so she came, to, she came to hear of what God did, but she came to also believe and trust in this God. She came to acknowledge him for being the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And Rahab's faith well, then led her to welcome the spies. Hide them, protect them from the king of Jericho, and send them safely away. And what's significant here, just as we think about Abraham's faith, is for Rahab's faith, she loved and feared God more than she loved and feared her nation, her government rulers, her king. Her actions to save the spies were the works then by, by which she was justified. Her works demonstrated her faith in the Lord, just as like Abraham's did for his faith in the Lord. And so we learn that Rahab's faith by this example of protecting the messengers and sending them away from, uh, in safety was a demonstration of her faith. Hers was a living faith. A faith that works is a living faith. And James then concludes with a final illustration to bring home his point. In verse 26, he writes, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This illustration is pretty straightforward. I think we understand this, right? Anybody living here? You have, are you alive? You have a body and you have a spirit, a soul, that is, right? It's pretty obvious. You, you're alive, you're, you know, you're going to have a spirit. So you have a body without a soul, without spirit, dead. You have a spirit you know, even in, you know, say in heaven, without your body, someone is dead. You know, without the, the two must go, must belong together in order for there to be a living body. Just as the body without spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So that means faith, you want to have someone that's alive, a living faith, you need faith and works together. Without one or the other, you have a dead faith, is the point. And the corollary is this. A living faith, then has both faith and works. In Hebrews 11, which is known as the Hall of Faith, a series of individuals are commended for their faith, for their faith, for their trust in God. But in every case, when we look at Hebrews 11, you're just going to go through the list, every single one, faith is demonstrated by works. Faith is demonstrated by works. And it's no surprise that we find Abraham and Rahab listed in that Hall of Faith. 
Hebrews 11.31, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And Hebrews 11.17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. And so from the faith of Abraham, the faith of Rahab, the example of faith for us, we learn that whether you are a man or a woman, a patriarch or a prostitute, a Jew or a Gentile, rich or poor, when God saves you, when God gives you faith to believe in him, you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And God will then be at work in your life through Christ, and he will both cause you to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is inevitable for faith and works go hand in hand in our lives as believers. We may wonder, just as we think about this application in our, each and our own lives, how much work should we then be seeing in our life? How much works is enough? How much work shows that, oh, yes, I have a, I have a saving faith, a living faith? Well, certainly it's not 100% sinlessness, 100% perfection. In fact, we know that Abraham and Rahab both sinned despite having faith. Abraham sought the fulfillment of God's promises through sleeping with his wife Sarah's maid, Hagar. Rahab herself, in saving the spies, lied to the king, deceived the king. We don't really... I don't think we give an answer with regards to percentage. Rather, we should simply be looking for a pattern, a pattern in our lives of obedience to God's command, a pattern of faith that honors God before all, whether before one's family or whether before one's nation. I was thinking about that uh, this weekend, just think about how uh, we tend to live in a nation that is, a, a, you know, uh, that's the world thinks of as a Christian nation. And uh, we are called, of course, to submit to our, our nation, to submit to the rules of this land. But there, it is possible that one day the government may change. It's a democracy, so if a majority of people think of one way, they can establish laws. And it can become a point where one day they would be legislated by our, by our government that, it, that the things you believe, we believe as Christians, would be wrong, would be illegal, would be forbidden. And when those days come... May God never allow those days, but they are predominant for the rest of the Christians in the world. Will we, as the people of God, respond with a faith that works? Will we put always God even before our nation? Something for us to think about now, because it's likely that in our gener- before in my generation and younger, it could change. It could change. I also want to answer the question, what do I do if I have dead faith? I've been listening to this word, and I'm thinking, you know, I, I, I don't see any pattern of life, of works in my life. What do I do? Well, then the answer is clear. It's not to, it's not to add works. Now I just all of a sudden try to add more works in my life. I'm going to start doing works, doing works. No, that's, you have a dead faith. You can't just add works to it. You need a living faith. And just as how a person becomes alive by being born, so how does one have real faith? By being born again. You need to be born again. Born again allow, that, to allow God to work in your life, to transform you, to bring you to saving faith in Jesus, to have a true, a, a, 
faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, prayerfully cry out to him and cry out to God, I have not believed in you truly. And I want to have a saving, genuine faith in your son who died on the cross in my place. And I put my trust in you as my Lord and Savior. And then that genuine faith will lead to a works, to the production, the inevitable production of works in your life. Pray, but begin with prayer. Pray to God. Cry out to God for such a faith. I'd like to conclude with just uh, one a, a scripture. James is very, when we come to James, we, it just seems so radical. In fact, uh, Martin Luther didn't like the book of James because it was so radical. It contradicted, uh, you know, just the whole idea of sola fide. But when we think about the subject of faith that works, James is not the very first that taught it. A faith that works was ultimately taught first, at least in the New Testament, by Jesus Christ himself, by our Lord and Savior. And he taught it in the Sermon on the Mount. And then, and after the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7, at the, after teaching in, the, in Matthew 5 through 7 all about the correct interpretation of the law over and over time, you've heard this, but I say to you this, James said, Jesus would say often, correcting them, correcting them, correcting them. And each time he tells them, this is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to live. He ends up with warning them about bearing fruit. Make sure that you are, a, you know, bear, you need to be a good tree, bears good fruit. And Jesus concludes with these words, and at the very end of his, uh, of his uh, Sermon on the Mount, and I think it's fitting if you, we can conclude with these words, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus teaches clearly it's not enough to be a hearer of the word. One must be a doer of it as well. And as we learn today, a living faith is a faith that works. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would manifest in our lives a faith that works and that cause us to rejoice and give you thanks as we have watched and depend upon you for the manifestation of these good works which you have prepared for from eternity past so that we would walk in them. Lord, continue to help us to will and to work for your good pleasure. Lord, we, we pray that if there's any here who do not yet know Jesus Christ, maybe they've had a dead faith, a, a false profession. Lord, I pray that they would instead repent and believe upon Jesus Christ and receive this gift of true faith. May you regenerate their heart, cause them to be born again, Lord, we pray, that they too might experience this living faith that works. And we thank you for this instruction, this warning to us, this encouragement to our lives. We ask that as we do so, may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.